Mark chapter 3. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. We're going to keep plugging through the Gospel of Mark. Um, we here at Reliance, uh, we do things in this way, to where no matter who's teaching, if it's Pastor Terry, if it's Pastor Ted, if it's myself, we're just going to keep teaching through what we're teaching through. Um, it's, it's a really cool thing that uh, Pastor Ted doesn't lay claim to the Gospel of Mark and say, all right, you, you teach wherever you want to teach, but stay away from my text. Um, it's the Word of God, you know, and he's just, you just keep teaching. We'll just keep going through wherever we're at. And so um, today we're going to be looking in the Gospel of Mark uh, through uh, verses 1 through 19. And if you know me, then you know that that's a lot of verses for my heart to be able to handle. But uh, praise God, we're going to make it through. We did. We made it through in first service with minor complaining about how long I talked. But uh, by the grace of God, we'll get through it. Um, Mark chapter 3, verse 1. It says, And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. And he said to him, is, then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to them, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Verse 7. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude uh, from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and uh, Iduma and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. Verse 10. For he healed many so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him, and the, unclean, and the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him, make him known. Verse 13, and, we, and he went up on the mountain and called, his, called to him those, who, uh, those he himself wanted, and, he, and they came to him, and then he appointed twelve. That, he, that they may be, may be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. Simon, Simon who he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and uh, John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is the sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into... A house. Here in Mark chapter 3, we have, as uh, Pastor Ted explained last week, we have a continuation of chapter 2. Uh, chapter 3, the first six verses are simply a continuation of the, the conversation that Jesus was having with the Pharisees at the end of chapter 2. And, uh, and then we, we move from that into uh, Jesus actually going to the multitudes, and then from that we go to Jesus with his disciples. And you see these three different selections, these three different groups of people, and they seemingly have no connection to one another. But uh, as, as, I, as I looked through this section, I was really seeking the Lord and, God, what would your message be to your people today? What do you want to do through this section of Scripture to meet your people where they're at? The, the overwhelming thing that came to me was this, this message that, that, I, that I want to preach today, and that is the title of this message being Faith plus Obedience equals Blessing. Faith plus Obedience equals Blessing. So first, in order to kind of talk about this, we've got to talk about expectations, right? Expectations. Very little in the kingdom of God works out in equations. A plus B equals C. Have you figured that out yet? Have you figured out that about life yet? That it just doesn't work that way? A plus B doesn't always equal C. And sometimes there's, you know, a variable that's thrown in there that throws the whole mix off. Um, in fact, most of life will never work out this way. But we like to put clear and certain boundaries on life. I don't know if you're like me. That's exactly what I like to do, to put clear and certain boundaries on life that, that if I know how this is going to work out in this context, under these circumstances, this way, this is exactly the way it's all going to work out. Having expectations of certainty. If I do this, and then this, this is going to happen. That's the way that we like to live life. But the truth is... The fact is, the reality is, that's not necessarily the way that life works out. Reaching the end of a job interview, the human resources person asked a young engineer fresh out of MIT 
And what starting salary were you looking for? The engineer said, well, in the neighborhood of 125000 a year, depending, depending on the benefits package. So the interviewer said, well, what would you say to a benefits package of five weeks of vacation, 14 paid holidays, full medical and dental, company matching retirement fund up to 50% of your salary, and a company car leased every two years, say a red Corvette? Man, this guy's blown away. You know, he sits up in his chair. He's just, he's elated. He can't, he can't believe this. And he says, wow, are you kidding? And uh, the interviewer said, yeah, but you started it, right? He had, this guy had very unreal expectations. He expected, I, I went to MIT. I deserve 125000 starting, right? Just unreal expectations. The guy had a certain expectation of life that was not consistent with reality. And I think a lot of times we do that to ourselves in our Christianity. That a lot of times we have a certain expectation of our life in Christ that's not consistent with reality. It may be consistent with what we think it should be. It may be consistent with the way that we feel life should go. But it's not consistent with reality. As, as Kyle Curry often likes to say, we like our Christianity to be flowers and puppy dogs. You know, just no bad days. Everything's good. There's nothing that ever happens wrong. Don't mess me up when I'm in my little Christian bubble. You know, I got my Christian dog and my Christian kids and I drive my Christian SUV with my Christian sticker on it and I listen to my Christian radio and go to my Christian schools. And, you know, it's just like I got this bubble going on. Nothing can disrupt it. Everything is going good. But uh, inevitably, life happens. And when life happens, what do we do? When A plus B doesn't equal C and there's, everything goes crazy, how do we handle it? What do we do? Life doesn't always work out with mathematical certainty, but we like certainty. We, we love certainty. Why? Because it gives us a sense of control on life, right? You have a sense of control on life because of the certainty that's there. If this is certain, then I have control over the situation. I can control A. I can control B. I know I'm going to get C. That's, that's why we like this certainty. It gives us a sense of, of expectation. I know what I'm going to get. I know what C is going to be because of A and B. Uh, it's just what I can expect. It gives us a, um, it gives us a sense of uh, secure. Oh, I'm sorry. It's, it allows us to pass the blame. It, it, it allows us to, to pass the blame off. I know why this didn't happen because I did A plus Q and that's why I didn't get C. Uh, so it allows us to blame something, you know, um, or I did A and B. Why didn't C happen? God, you must be a jerk. Uh, so, you know, A plus B equals C. It also makes room for clear explanation. I got to C because of B and because of A, and it's just clearly understood. And here's it all lays out nice and neat and packaged greatly with a little bow wrapped up and everything's good. That's the way we like to live our lives, with this clear expectation. Yet the problem with this kind of certainty is that while it may seem to provide security, it simultaneously removes faith. While it may seem to provide security... It simultaneously robs you of faith. Now, why is that important? Why does that have any bearing on what we're talking about? Because faith is the foundation. It's the fundamental ground level of your relationship with God. Your relationship with God is completely contingent upon faith. Without faith, it is impossible to have a relationship with God. In fact, it goes so far, faith is so important in your relationship with God that Romans 14, 23 says that whatever is not from faith is sin. Not that it's just bad, not that, you know, it's just not a good idea, but that it's sin, that it's in fact sin. Anything that you do in your life, anything that comes into your life that is not from faith, in that context, they're, even, they're talking about eating. That, it, that, that even if you eat not in faith, it's sin. It's kind of a crazy idea. But we have to grab this reality that, that faith is so important to my relationship with God. But God's expectation of faith is not that we follow some unknown or unknowable force, you know, like Star Wars or whatever, that we use kind of the force is kind of there. You don't really know, but you kind of know. You're not really sure. You're, you know, you, you go into the unknown, into this black abyss of nothingness to try to figure out what's going to happen when you get there. That's not what God's expecting. That's not God's expectation of faith. That's not a clear, that's not a good definition of what faith is. Faith has very little to do with stepping out into, into the unknown without any knowable. Instead, God's expectation is that we know his word so that when we hear his voice, we can move into the unknown by faith based on what we do know. 
based on what we do know, that we know his word, that we know his character, that we understand who God is. That way, when the unknown variables come into our lives, you got somewhere to go. you got something to lean on. I know that God is good. So no matter what happens in my life, no matter how bad it may seem, no matter how crazy life gets, I know God is good. I know I can trust him. His word says he'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. His word says that he is holy, that he is just, that he is righteous. I can lean upon the understanding of his word. And because of that, I have the faith to go through the unknown. That's the kind of faith that God's talking about. Generally speaking, God does not put himself into the equation box. But when it comes to aspects of God's character, you can always count on him. You can always count on him. God will always work out mathematically, 100% accuracy, if it comes down to his character, because that's who God is. Not necessarily the variables that happen in life. And so while we're looking at this, you know, we're, we're looking at this whole perspective of faith plus obedience equaling, uh, equaling uh, blessing, that's an A plus B equals C equation. And it's contingent upon who God is. Not necessarily the circumstances of life. And so here in this first 19 verses of Mark chapter 3, we find Jesus engaging three different sections or groups of people. We're going we're gonna to take them just like this. We're going to take them in these groups. In verses 1 through 6, um, we see Jesus engaging the Pharisees based around their improper understanding and application of the law. In verses 7 through 12, Jesus is engaging the multitude based on their physical and spiritual needs going unmet. In verses 13 through 19, Jesus is engaging the apostles based around their involvement with him and in his ministry. And through these three different groups of people that Jesus is engaging, he's engaging in around this equation that faith plus obedience equals blessing. That being said, let's get into the first part, first part. So let's read verses 1 through 6 again just to kind of grab, us, grab our attention back to the word and back to what is being talked about and back to where Jesus is engaging these Pharisees. Verse, verse 1 of chapter 3, it says this, And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had a withered hand, Step forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Engagement number one. Jesus is coming to this continuation of a conversation with the Pharisees that he had in chapter 2 about the Sabbath. He was talking to the Pharisees about um, fasting and then about the Sabbath. And it's just kind of a continuation of that uh, as we look through these first six verses. The Pharisees, if you remember, were tremendously focused upon a form of obedience, yet their obedience was crippled by a lack of faith. They had obedience but they didn't know what it was to have faith. Their entire system was established around obedience. It was established around the keeping of the law. To know the law, to keep the law, to be obedient to the law. Uh, like, like Pastor Ted has established before, they had laws that were set up to help you keep the laws. Then they had other laws to help you get around those laws so that you didn't have to keep those laws, but you're keeping this law, so you got the law handled with the law. It's just this insanity going on, right? They're really, really focused upon this obedience, obedience, obedience. That was, their, that was their drive. Now, as we established before, the Pharisees' purpose was as a leadership for the people of Israel, and their primary function was to know the Word of God. Uh, look in, in chapter 2 really quick as we back up just to bring us into this. Chapter 2, verse 25. Notice what Jesus says to the Pharisees. It's, it's, it's hilarious. I, I love it. Um, verse 25. But Jesus said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry and, the, uh, and those with him? If you remember last week, Pastor Ted made the, made the note of that, made, called our attention to the fact that Jesus is looking at the Pharisees whose purpose is to lead the people and whose primary function in that is to know the word of God. And he says, have you ever read the scriptures? Okay. Are, we, are we meeting here on this? Like, have you read? It's like if you were to come here and, you know, you hear this nice little sermon and the, whoever's standing up here talks for a while and says a few things and it's nice and fun and you laugh and you cry and you go out and you have some lunch and you're like, oh, wasn't that just a good service today? And you think back, what was it about? I don't really know. Some stuff was said, you know. You 
you could come up and say, do you, have you seen this before? Do you know what this is about? Do you, do you teach this? That's, that's supposed to be my job. That's supposed to be what I do. That's my primary function is to stand up here and not tell you some words, not tell you some stories and make you feel happy and, you know, give you some little happy times, you know. It's not, <laughs> that's not what this is about. This is about understanding the word of God. This is about hearing this. And so, in the same way, Jesus goes up to the Pharisees like, have you guys ever, have you ever read, have you ever read the scriptures? Which was the definition of their job. And so, you know, he, he goes into this, this, this time where he's going to go into the, the, um, the temple. And as Jesus goes into the temple, he's going into the temple knowingly, right? He walks into the temple, and as he goes into the temple, he knows the situation that he's walking into. He knows exactly who he's talking to. He knows exactly who's going to be there, and he does so on purpose. Think of it for a second. Just picture it. Jesus is going into the temple, and, and, and uh, there's, a, there's a word that's described here. Um, when he says to the man with the withered hand in verse 3, when he says to him, step forward, what that literally means is to step into the midst of or arise and come into the midst, into the center is kind of the idea. So, so if you think of it, like Jesus comes into the temple, he's, he's you know, going in there and there's this group of people all gathered around him. Some of them are his disciples. The Pharisees are in there. There's people that are there just trying to worship God. There's this guy with the withered hand. And they go in and Jesus purposefully selects this man with the withered hand. He goes up to him, he sees him and he says, Arise and come into the midst. So Jesus is there. There's a man with a withered hand. He calls him out. He knows exactly what's going on. In verse 2, it says that they watched him closely. He knows that the Pharisees are watching him. And so he takes this man with a withered hand on purpose. He purposefully selects the crippled man to step into the midst of the group with him as, he repre- as this man represents the spiritual condition of the Pharisees. Jesus is doing an object lesson right here. He grabs this, withered, this man with a withered hand, this crippled man, and what he's trying to do is knock on the heads of the Pharisees and say, hello, are you getting what I'm saying? Your spiritual condition, even though you think you have everything taken care of by your obedience, you're crippled. You're crippled. You only have half of it. You got one good arm and one bad arm. You don't even know what you're doing. You're crippled, just like this man with this withered hand. He's trying to paint an object lesson for the Pharisees. And as he, as he goes to this man and he, he pulls him into the group, Jesus makes a simple statement, a very simple statement and a commandment. Look in, in verse 5, he says what, what Jesus says there. If you have a red letter edition, you can clearly see that. Jesus says, stretch out your hand. Jesus says to the man, stretch out your hand. Jesus makes a simple statement, a commandment to this crippled man to stretch out his hand. Jesus doesn't say, okay, I want you to, uh, you know, first I need you to run down and grab a bucket of water from this river. And then I need you to come back and I need you to run around the temple five times. And then I need you to go out and, uh, and repeat this saying in front of as many people as you can. And then in a month after you've prayed for a long time, we'll decide whether or not we want to try to heal your arm. He just says, stretch out your hand. A very simple commandment, a very simple thing that he says to him, to, to stretch out his hand. What we have to realize is that Jesus' commandments are simultaneously his enablements. When Jesus commands us to do something, when God commands us to do something, he is also enabling us to perform that, right? That's, that's kind of like theology 101. God's commandments are simultaneously his enablements. God will not ask you to do something that he will not also provide the ability to perform. At his word, at God's word, we must move out in faith to obey his command in order to receive the blessing that he extends. This man, this crippled man, is a perfect example of this, right? Jesus' word, he says, stretch out your hand. What did the crippled man do? He, he's starts to stretch out his hand. He didn't say, well, that doesn't really make sense, God. I mean, I have this hand and it's kind of small and I can't really stretch it out that far. And if you tell me to do it, then what if nothing happens? And I'm not really sure if, if the people are going to make fun of me because my hand's little and if I stretch it out, then it might look weird. And he doesn't have all these excuses running through his mind. Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And he acts in faith, in faith to stretch out His hand. Faith begins at the understanding of God's word. He begins to understand God's word. He moves out in faith, even though it doesn't make sense, even though it's not clearly defined. He doesn't know what's going to happen. Maybe he's going to stretch his arm out and Jesus is going to go, look, he has a crippled hand. That guy's a freak, you know? That would suck. But, you know, Jesus doesn't do that, right? He says, stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. He gives him a simple command. 
At his word, we must move out in faith to obey his command. When, and he will command us to do what seems and what we deem impossible. But at the very moment you begin to do it anyway, even though it doesn't make sense, even though you can't put it all together, even though there's no clear A plus B equals C, and I just package it all neatly and I know exactly what's going to happen, even though it doesn't make sense, and I'm not sure where God's going with this, if I step out in faith and do what he says anyway, he'll meet me there. He'll meet me there. And not only will he give me the ability to do it, but he'll give me the ability to continue in it. To do it at the moment, but also to continue on. When I think about this, I think about Indiana Jones. Anybody like Indiana Jones? I love Indiana Jones movies. They're, they're super geeky and kind of cheesy, but I love them. They're awesome. They were sweet at the time, but like with the movies today, it's like, come on. Can you swing on a whip like that? Anyway, so Indiana Jones, right? Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, right? Uh, this is the, the one where they're looking for the, the chalice, you know, the cup of, you know, whatever. Anyway, so they're looking for the cup and uh, they get to the kind of the end of the movie, right? And they're, they're, he's going through all these different tests that he has to go through in order to get to the cup. And he comes to, this, the, to one of the last ones right before he can get to the cave. And there's the old guy that's, you know, guarding him or whatever. It, he's getting there and there's this chasm. There's a bottomless pit basically. And he's standing on one side and he has to walk on air across nothing to get to the cave. Of wonders, you know? Oh, wait, I'm mixing up my movies. Anyway, um, that was Aladdin if you missed it. Sorry. <laughs> so he's getting across. He's trying to get across. So as we, uh, as we see Indiana Jones there, and he's, he's holding his heart, and he's really just super dramatic, and he steps, puts his foot out, and you're like, don't do it, Indy, you're going to die, you know? And he steps out, and what you see as the camera angle changes is there was a bridge there all along. What he thought was impossible, and there's no way for me to walk across it, was always there from the beginning. But from his perspective, he didn't see the bridge. It was an optical illusion. It blended in with the background. He couldn't see it, but the camera angle changes, and all of a sudden you realize, come on, that was easy. You know, and then he just walks across it. No problem, right? The thing that we have to see with it is that God is the same way. Even though we don't see what's laid out before us, even though we don't understand and we can't put all the pieces together and it doesn't make sense, he says, just step out. It's there. I'm not going to tell you it's there. You've got to figure that one out by yourself. You've got to step out and trust me. Do you trust me? Are you willing to step out even though it doesn't make sense, even though you can't put it all together? Are you willing to step out? And, and, even, and, and there, as Indy is able to, to step out, he's able to continue stepping because of what he saw before him. Jesus is reaching out to the Pharisees. And here is my, my deep conviction and what I honestly believe that Jesus is doing right here is he's reaching out to the Pharisees because Jesus wants to help them to understand not only the institution of the Sabbath, but also the heart behind the Sabbath and what its purpose really is. So you see, realize this. Jesus doesn't have to engage the Pharisees at all. Jesus is the one that goes into the temple. Jesus is the one that starts to talk to the Pharisees. He didn't have to say anything to them at all. He didn't have to talk to them in any way. He could have just avoided them. There's a lot of times where we see that the people are pressing around him and then it says that Jesus just kind of slipped through the crowd and was gone. You know, they had no idea where he went. Jesus didn't have to talk to them at all, but he chooses to speak with them about fasting and about the Sabbath because these are issues that are close to their hearts. These are issues that are close to the hearts of the Pharisees. They had believed so much that because I'm born a Jew and because I keep the law, that gives me the right to be called the people of God. That's what they believed. There was an A plus B equals C equation in their mind of religious experience. That because I was born a Jew, because I keep the law and I'm acting in obedience, now I get to be called the people of God. I have the blessing to be called God's people. And Jesus recognizes this barrier of religion that encases the hearts of the Pharisees. And through this extreme graciousness, I honestly believe that Jesus is attempting to break through this barrier to change their hearts and to use them to lead his people. To use them to lead his people. What better people would there be to reach out to, uh, to the world but the Pharisees? I mean, think about this for a second. Paul, the apostle, was himself a Pharisee. From one Pharisee, we got most of the New Testament. That's a big deal, right? One Pharisee gave us the, gave us the New Testament. So Jesus, 
is reaching out to these Pharisees, and I honestly believe he's trying to take them from what they believe they've, they've constructed and these theologies that they've put together about who God is and who God should be, break through it all, get to the heart of the issue, and bring them to himself so that he can then use them to minister to the people the way that they should have been all along. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Here in Matthew chapter 11, we see that uh, Jesus is speaking to the multitudes. And as he's speaking to the multitudes, he's trying to teach them about who John the Baptist is. And it's, it's a profound thing that Jesus says here in John, uh, or Matthew chapter 11 about John the Baptist. We'll start in verse 11, and uh, we'll, just, we'll just read to verse 14. You can continue the thought all the way through to verse 19, and maybe the Lord will reveal some things to you as you read on your own. Um, but uh, we'll stop at verse 14 because that's really kind of the point of it all. Verse 11 of of Matthew 11 says this, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he uh, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For the prophets uh, and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who, who is to come. Verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him here. What is Jesus explaining here? What is Jesus describing here? He's coming, to, he's coming to them and he's describing John the Baptist. He's describing John the Baptist's role. And when, when he talks about Elijah, what, they, what their thoughts, what the multitude's thoughts being, uh, being taught the scriptures, what they would understand is they would transfer that thought back to the book of Malachi and the prophecy that was spoken that said that Elijah would come before the Christ. That Elijah would come before the Christ. And, and in the context of this, we see that the Jewish people are encased by these Roman, uh, the Roman people and that they, they're just enslaved basically by the Romans and that they, 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 they feel oppressed by the Romans. And so they're looking for Elijah to come because when Elijah comes, that means the Christ is going to come. And when the Christ comes, boom, we're set free. The kingdom of God is established on earth and we get to be, we get to be ruling over the Romans instead. And what Jesus is saying here, don't miss it, verse 14, he says, if you are willing, if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Jesus is saying this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. But the, but the basis of that is contingent on their willingness, their willingness to see. Jesus is speaking to these multitudes and a very interesting thing that he says is basically, I can right now fulfill all of these prop- prophecies if you're willing to believe in who I really am and who he is. If you're willing to receive me as the Christ, as who I really am, not who you want me to be, not who you say I should be, but who I really am. If you're willing. You see, the issue is that of willingness, specifically the willingness to put aside my developed theologies and come to terms with God, who God really is, not who I want him to be. So he comes to them and he says, if you're willing, he is Elijah. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Go back to Mark chapter 3. Let's picture this idea for a second. Let's, let's try to get a, get a picture of what's happening as, as Jesus is here talking to the, disciple, to, the, to the Pharisees. Picture it. Jesus goes to the religious center of the world, the temple, right? It's the religious center. He goes on the religious holy day, the Sabbath. He speaks to the religious holy guys, the Pharisees, about religion, right? About the Sabbath. And so here, here we have this whole religious thing going on, this religious theme that's overarching it all. And as Jesus steps in, he uses a crippled man and literally causes the guy to grow an arm. I mean, think about that for just a second. There's a guy, little arm. I don't know if you met a guy named Winger. That's what I think of. This guy's awesome guy. Just cool, dude. He's just got this little tiny little arm. You know, they call him Winger because it looks like a wing. Uh, and man, the guy uses that to evangelize. Like he's just a cool dude. So, I mean, I think about that. He's a stretch out your arm, goes whoop, whoop, and the whole arm pops out, you know? Like, that's crazy. That doesn't happen every day. That doesn't just, just happen. And these Pharisees are so caught up in themselves that they're mad that Jesus did it. Instead of happy that this guy has two arms. I mean, this guy is, he's never been able to really work with this arm like this. He's, he's had to rely on other people to provide for himself. He's, he's probably been looked at as a freak and a downcast, and maybe, maybe God's judging him, and what did he do? Oh, he must have done something bad in order to have a crippled arm or, you know, whatever. 
Maybe his parents are evil. I don't know. I, meeting some of your kids, I kind of think that about. No, I'm just kidding. Um, preach it. Preach it. Uh, he... <laughs> He has this, this arm, and literally he grows a full arm out of that. Like, that's crazy. That's crazy. Jesus is uh, using this to break through the hardened shell that's encasing the hearts of the Pharisees. He's using this miracle. He's using this, this time to catch them in their holy place on this holy day, speaking to the holy guys about this holy thing, to break through and get past the religion and get to the heart of the issue. What's really going on? Jesus breaks through the hard shell of who they expect him to be with miraculous, wondrous, God-only works that, are, that bring them to the critical moment of their relationship with Jesus. This critical moment is a moment of faith. It's a moment of faith. Will they trust even though it doesn't make sense to them, even though it goes against everything that they've been taught since they were children, even though it's not fitting into their A plus B equals C mold, are they going to have faith? Two choices that we have when we come to faith. They're clearly illustrated for us in the book of Acts, right? We have the book of Acts. You have two different, two different uh, times where the gospel is preached. The first time Peter goes out, he preaches the gospel. The Bible tells us that the people were cut to the heart by the word of God, and they repented. Oh, praise God. The second time this happens, Stephen does this very same thing, preaches almost the exact same message. The very same thing happens. It says that the people, the people were cut to the heart, and they gnashed their teeth and killed him. Two very different things happen as a result of the word of God in our lives. And as Jesus comes to these Pharisees, he's coming to them with the truth, with the reality. And he cuts down and he goes through all of the religion. He gets through all the nonsense and he gets down to who they really are. He gets down to the root of their being. And as he meets them there, they have a choice to make. Will I have a heart of humility or will I have a heart of hardness? And if you have a heart of humility salvation occurs. If you have a heart of hardness, murder happens. Two different choices. So Jesus was trying to reach the Pharisees, but they wouldn't even first give ear to his word, much less step out in faith upon his word. We have to hear the word of God. We have to give ear to what God is actually saying. So engagement number two, verses seven through 12, there's a transition that happens here. As Jesus, uh, focus, Jesus focus do the hard heartedness of the Pharisees um, uh, and, and to the, he transitions from the Pharisees and their hard heartedness into the multitudes of the people. Let's read in verse seven. It says, uh, oh, just back up for a second. It says in verse six, the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians Herodians, kind of, that's kind of an interesting word. Herodians should make you think of Herod, right? Herod is the guy that gave the order for all of the, the children two years old and younger to be killed, to be murdered around the same time that Jesus was born. That's that Herod. Herodians is kind of like a multiple of that word Herod, which basically says that these are the people who are um, his followers. This is his group. These are the people who follow Herod. And, and so they would be diametrically opposed to the Jewish people. They would be the exact opposite. Herod was very evil to the Jewish people. He had, they had irreconcilable differences. You know, they couldn't, they couldn't come to terms. And so uh, now the Pharisees are going to the people who are their enemies and they're brought together in order to attack Jesus. It's like saying the people who are pro-choice and the people who are pro-life get together to attack Obama. It's just crazy. You know, it's not going to happen like that. Uh, I'm not saying that Obama's Jesus. Anyway, um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, so here we have this transition happening. Verse, verse 7, it says, But Jesus withdrew. But Jesus withdrew. Seeing that the Pharisees were more interested in themselves and their religion, he leaves and goes to the people that goes to the people to do what the Pharisees should have been doing. Right? He leaves and he goes to the Pharisee, to the, to the people. He leaves the Pharisees, he withdraws from them, and he goes out to the people to do what they should have been doing. Here's the question that I have when Jesus, it says that Jesus withdrew. Why weren't the multitudes at the temple? Why did Jesus have to withdraw in order to get to them? Why? I mean, this is the temple. This is where God had established that this is where we meet together. This is where we come together and we meet and we, have, we establish 
together our relationship. And the multitudes, the vast majority of the people, aren't even there. They have no chance of even getting to God. Why? What's going on? The people had no access to God because the Pharisees kept them away. The Pharisees kept them away from God. They were so caught up in their their order and their obedience and their obedience to this random selection of rules that they made up that the people were then made responsible to follow their order and their rules that obedience was placed over relationship with God. And the Pharisees, in effect, kept the people away. Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 9. Really quickly, Matthew chapter 9. Jesus makes an interesting, a very interesting statement here in Matthew chapter 9. Um, we'll read uh, verses 36 through 38 and see what Jesus has to say. Um, it's, it's profound. It, it struck me uh, very deeply, especially being in the position that I am in, in uh, leadership in the church. But verse 36, he says this, Matthew nine thirty-six. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers uh, to send out laborers into, the, into the, his harvest. Jesus here is analyzing the leadership of Israel. I don't know if you grabbed that or not. Jesus is analyzing the leadership of Israel, in, in essence, the Pharisees, right? He's looking at their leadership. He's looking at the way that they are leading the people, and he notices something. He notices that the people are weary and scattered. Here's the big thing that, that, that God hit me with. This word weary, literally, the literal translation of the word weary is harassed. The people were harassed. The, the, the Pharisees had used their leadership to harass the people instead of to serve the people. And because they harassed the people, I mean, what, what other response would you expect except that they're scattered? They're scattered abroad. They were so engaged with their religious attempts to get to God that they, in effect, pulled the people away. Jesus makes an assessment of these Pharisees and he's, uh, based on the state of the people, that the people were, were weary and literally harassed, being scattered. Because the Pharisees were so focused on their religious system and their seeming obedience, they ended up harassing the very people that God wanted them to care for. And as a result, they were scattered. They were pushed away. So Jesus had no choice. He had to depart. He had to be removed. He had to go find the people because they weren't there. They had no chance of meeting with God. Mark chapter 3. The Pharisees had obedience without faith. The multitudes had faith without obedience. Let's read verses 7 through 12. It says, But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and Aduma and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, so that uh, when they, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So, his disciples, so he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the, and the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. The Pharisees had obedience without faith, and the multitudes had faith without obedience. It's clear that the multitudes had faith. I mean, they were traveling from all over the place. When it, it's listing all these different, these different things, these different cities, it's basically saying from all over the place, all over the map, people are coming, they're flocking to Jesus. They cannot wait to get to where Jesus is because they've seen what he's done. They may have even heard about the guy with the withered hand that, you know, boom, that pops out an arm. And so they're like, if he can heal the guy with the withered hand... My goodness, I have a sniffle. I bet you he can heal that. That's going to be easy, you know? And so they're coming to Jesus, and, and they're, they're looking for him. It's clear that they had faith, and that they were willing to travel great distances in order to witness and experience the healing power of Jesus. But they would, be, uh, they would believe God because they knew of his great ability. And they, would also, they also knew the stories of their people's history and God's tremendous, miraculous ability. They could... 
Remember the stories that they're told of, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of Moses, of David, of Elijah. They could look back and see all of the amazing things that God was able to do with his people and through his people. They could see the miracles. And so it was easy. God can do that stuff. What's stopping him from doing it today? I trust God. I believe God. They had this faith, but their faith lacked obedience because obedience is only possible through the application of the word of God to your life. Obedience is only possible through the application of the word of God to your life. The easiest thing for me to think about in this is my children, right? Just be, between services, my daughter Leah and, uh, and Haley, my oldest two, uh, were over here uh, hanging out with me. And there was a couple of cups that were left from communion afterward. And so I, I looked at the cups and I said, Leah, can you go over and grab those cups, sweetie, and take them to the trash? And so she goes over and she grabs the cups and she goes, where's the trash, daddy? It's right over there. Go ahead. And so she runs over and she throws it away and she comes back and she's like, yeah, I just threw it away. You know, she's excited. She's three. Uh, you know, so three-year-old, that's a big deal, you know. And I'm like, you did such a good job. Thank you for listening to daddy, you know. And, and, and it's this idea of obedience. Now, she didn't know that I wanted her to pick up the cup unless I said, Leah, pick up the cup. Because I said it, she was able to hear it and then obey it. The same is true with us. Our obedience is directly tied to our, to our relationship with God's word. You don't, you're not just going to like randomly all of a sudden know God's will or God's voice just by wandering through the woods and saying, God, speak to me. You know, it just doesn't work like that. That's just weird. That's, that's mysticism weirdness. You know, like that's just not how God works. God has established his word. So use the brain God gave you and read the thing, right? <laughs> and as you read it, God will make himself known to you, and as he makes his will known to you, then obey it. Do what he says. It's it's pretty plain and clear and simple, and and that's just the truth of of how it happens. And So obedience is only possible through the application of God's word in your life. These people didn't really have access to God's word because of a broken religious system. The people were left believing whatever the Pharisees told them, not what the word of God said. They didn't, it's not like the printing presses we have today where everybody can have their own Bible and you can read it on your own and the word of God can minister to you. They were completely dependent upon the Pharisees to tell them what the word of God said and to help them apply it to their lives. And so because of this broken religious system, they did not have the opportunity of obedience. They were left to rely only on their faith. And so they were not able to experience the fullness of God in their lives. Over and over through scripture, we see the multitudes interested in their physical needs being met by Jesus. Every time it says multitudes, uh, they're coming together because they need something. They need food, they need healing, they need to be freed from demon possession. They need something, and so they're very needy, much like you people are. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) And they come to Jesus over and over again with this need. And we see consistently that Jesus would take the multitudes, seeing their needs, and he would sit them down, and then he would teach them, and then he would meet their needs, right? He would teach them first, and then he would meet their needs because they needed to hear the word of God. They needed to go from faith to obedience in order to experience the fullness of God in their life. They couldn't just rely on the faith. They needed obedience as well. There had to be this pairing of faith and obedience. Jesus, as he was teaching, he, uh, he, he would break down truth to be obeyed, and uh, it was hard sometimes. It even caused some of his disciples to leave. Not just the multitudes, but the disciples that Jesus had. It caused them to leave at a certain time. In John chapter 6, verses 60 through 68, you can read about how Jesus is kind of talking to them about the idea of, of of communion and making the connection to how Jesus isn't just something that you add to your life, but that he becomes your whole life. And he says, "You, those who eat my body and drink my blood are my disciples. And they're like, whoa, man, you just got weird on me. I'm not really sure what you're talking about, but I'm out of here. Verse 66, John 6, 66, kind of interesting, um, says that they departed, they left, they bailed, they took off. They wouldn't stick around with Jesus. Sometimes it's hard to obey the Lord. And so that brings us to engagement number three in Mark chapter three. You see that, Jesus comes in and, and you know, there's a great multitude um, and he, he, he has them, he heals them and he pushes them forward. But now in, in engagement number three, verses 13 through 19, Jesus shifts his attention once more to his disciples, more specifically 12 men who would from this moment on become the 12 apostles of Jesus. Verse 13, and he went up on the mountain and he called to him those he himself wanted and they came to him. 
Then he appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses, and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boadrinus, and this, that is the sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into a house. A quick note on the, on the names and the list of the names. Um, Jewish tradition would be that they would list the, the preeminent ones first, the, the more important ones, I guess you could say, first, and then the least important ones last. And so here we see that the first three names that are mentioned are Peter, James, and John. These are the people who, as we continue to read through the scriptures, will consistently see that Jesus takes these three men and he pulls them aside and he spends more time with them than anybody else. As we read through the scriptures, they were the three that went on the Mount of Transfiguration uh, with Jesus. They were the three that, that were able to see Jesus a little bit more intimately. Also true, uh, the last name being mentioned is Judas Iscariot, as he was the one that would be betrayed. And so he was the least in their eyes. The Pharisees, had obedience without faith. The multitudes had faith without obedience. And now Jesus turns his attention to the apostles to grow in them this faith plus obedience to work out the blessing of the Lord in their lives. He's he's trying to, to grow the discipline in them to understand faith and obedience and blessing. To take it from the example of the man who had the withered hand, who established that, the faith and obedience, getting the blessing in his life. He's now going to train up the disciples and teach them what it really is to do this. And as he grows in them this discipline to first hear his word, to secondly believe it in faith, to third act on it by obedience, and to see, number four, the blessings of the miracles in them and through them. Both the miracles of blessings in them as well as through them. And so he, he takes these first, he takes his, his uh, apostles and he goes and he begins to, to invest in them in this way. And it says in verse 13, he went up on the mountain and he called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him. Now when we come to this point, this is a major point of debate and discussion that has plagued the church for generations. For hundreds and hundreds of years, this has been debated. This idea of God selecting certain people. This idea of God calling certain people. And it's this thing that's just gone through the church over and over again. And I want to try to cast a little bit of light on this. Obviously, we're not going to you know, solve the problem that men way more intelligent than I am have been debating for a long time. But I just want to throw a few verses at you. For food for thought. When we talk about God selecting. Jesus called whom he wanted to himself, and this thought immediately causes most people to think, that's unfair. Why, why would he do that? Why would, you, why would you call certain people and not call other people? Why would you select them? Well, turn in your Bibles. We're going we're to look at three different sections of Scripture to kind of piece this all together. Turn in your Bibles first to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 as we begin to wrap up. Ephesians 1, we're going to look at verses 4 through 6. Ephesians 1, verse 4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Here in in verse 4 he says, He chose us before the foundations of the world. And what that thought immediately grabs for us is the fact that God has infinite knowledge of infinite things. This is a, a key point of your understanding of who God is, that God has infinite knowledge of infinite things. God understands everything. He doesn't just kind of get a little bit and kind of figuring out as he goes. God understands everything. Everything is perfectly arranged in the mind of God. That because of where he is, because of that, before even the foundations of the world were established, before your parents came together and you were born, before you were even a thought, you existed in the mind of God as he thought about you. And as he He chose you before the foundations of the world. That's only possible because of God's infinite knowledge of infinite things. Think about it like this. 
I was listening to John Corson teach about this and, you know, talk about this whole idea, and he used a, an example that I thought was perfect, so I'm just going to steal it. Um, <clears throat> if, if I was to go down, you know, if, let's say I have all knowledge. I understand all things. Not just, you know, some things, but I have all knowledge. I have God's kind of understanding, God's knowledge. And I use that knowledge to know the lottery numbers. And I go down and I select certain lottery numbers. And then I buy a lottery ticket. And all of you think, Cody, that's gambling. You can't, can't you, there's no gambling. You can't gamble, you know. I take that lottery ticket and I win the lottery, right? Because it's not gambling if you know. That's kind of an easy put. It's not gambling if you know, that's, that's called a wise investment. I spend $5, I get $4 million. I mean, how is that? that's wise. That's taking my knowledge and applying it in a very wise way. That's exactly the way that God uses his selection. He has this understanding. He has this, this knowledge that goes before, that's outside of time. And so because of his understanding, in light of his knowledge, he's able to make a selection. Take this idea and turn to John chapter 15. This is what I like to call Bible sprints. I'm going to go back and forth a little bit. John 15. Jesus is speaking to his disciples here in John 15, and he's talking to them about some very interesting things, connecting some, some really cool points. And in the beginning of John 15, he's talking to them about how he's the vine and we're the branches and we need to be established with him and connected with him. But then he goes a little bit deeper into this relationship, starting in verse 14, and he says some things that are really tremendously amazing. Keep in mind what we read in Ephesians says this, verse 14, You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go bear fruit and that, you, that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Verse 16, Jesus says, You didn't choose me, I chose you. You. It it just kind of reaffirms what was stated there in Ephesians 1, that God is the one who selects us. And when you come to salvation in Christ, when you come to that that point of of yielding your life to the Lord, it's in your mind, you're choosing God. I'm choosing to give my heart to God. I'm choosing to allow God to have me. I'm choosing to come into this relationship with God. And as you grow in your faith, you come to the realization that I didn't choose God. It had nothing to do with me choosing God, but in fact that God selected me. And what an amazing thing, that God selected me. Back up to verse 14, and we'll kind of develop this thought a little bit. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. What kind of friendship is that? What are you talking about? You know, it's like I go to my wife, hey, I will love you as long as you do whatever I say. The moment you don't, you're out. You know, that's not a a right relationship. That doesn't work like that. That's exactly Jesus' point. It's exactly what he's trying to drill into our minds. That this is not a relationship like any other you've ever had. That your relationship with Jesus is not that he's your buddy. Jesus doesn't come down to your level and you you guys are homeboys. It's not like that. No matter what the t-shirt or the hat says, Jesus is not your homeboy. He's not your buddy. We're not pals. Jesus and I don't go play basketball together. You know, that's not the relationship that we have. The relationship that we have is that Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. And even though he is King, he's establishing with me a friendship relationship. It kind of sheds light on it in verse 15. He says, no longer do I call you servants for a servant does not know what his master is doing. He kind of continues on with that thought. In this, that word servant is the word doulos in the Greek. Doulos, which means Slave. It always means slave. It's always meant slave. It'll never mean anything other than slave. It's always been slave. It can't ever mean anything but slave. It's slave. That's all the slave it can slave because it's slave. You guys getting what I'm saying? It's slave. It's not servant. It's been translated servant, but that's an improper wording in English of what the word really means. The word really means slave. It's not like I'm a servant as if, you know, I go to work and, you know, if I just don't like my boss and he makes me mad, I quit. No, no, no. Slave. You've been purchased. You are owned. You do what I say because I own you. You're my slave. That's the, that's the word that's being used there. And what Jesus says is you're no longer just slaves because a slave doesn't understand his master's will. He says you're my friend. But he doesn't 
eliminate the slave relationship. Does that make sense? He says, you are a slave. You are my, I have purchased you with my own blood. I have selected you. I have chosen you. You are mine. I own you. First Corinthians chapter six, you're no longer your own. You've been bought with a price. You aren't yours. You don't belong to yourself. You're a slave of God. And not, not just a slave, but you have entered into a slave plus relationship, plus friendship. And so that's how Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. You can be my friend and my slave, not just my slave. He's trying to add depth to that relationship. So we have this idea in Ephesians and this idea in John. Now, before, you know, you're like, Jesus chose me. How awesome is that? It's so good. I must be worth something awesome. I mean, Jesus chose me. He died for me. That's a high price to pay. I, am, I, am, I must be so valuable. I, I love me. You know, before you start to go along those lines, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. We'll read that together kind of cap this thought. Verse 26, have you ever wondered who you are and you know what God really thinks about you? Here we go. Get ready, buckle your seatbelts if you don't remember this verse or you haven't read it before. Verse 26, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26 says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but those but God has chosen the foolish things of the world. That's you. Um, to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world. There, There's you again. I'm so glad I came to church today. I'm a foolish weakling. Um, to put the things, uh, chose the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Verse 28. And the base things of the world uh, to, and the, the base things, of, I'm sorry, the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things which are, verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. You see, you've been selected, you've been chosen, not on the basis of who you are, because you're just a weak, foolish person who has base nothingness to offer to God. You've been chosen on the basis of God, and who he is, and his greatness, and his glory. Like the word tells us that we love because he first loved us. That, that our capacity to love him is based not on our ability or on how great we are or just because I love God, but because he loves me. And that I, I am able to love him and then to love other people because he loves me. It's his love worked out in me through me. So, Jesus, so we got this idea and you, know, you may be thinking to yourself, that still has no answer to the question of why is it? It's just not fair. How did Jesus, why? Jesus chose some people. I understand that he chose. I understand that he chose not based on me, but still he chose. Come on. Doesn't that make God a jerk? No. Uh, <laughs> Jesus called whom he wanted to himself. And this thought immediately causes most people to think that it's unfair. But think about it like this. Think about it from the perspective of, uh, of your marriage. If you're married, um, when you get married, you have the right to choose who you want to be married to, right? You have the right to choose who you want to spend the rest of your life with. And no one comes to you and says, that is not fair, that's mean, that's wrong. You didn't choose all those other people out there. I can't believe you're such a mean person to choose that one woman to be married to. Jerk. You know, that doesn't work like that. That doesn't make sense. That's ridiculous. That's just, it doesn't connect. Like, of course I have that right to choose my wife, to, to select who I want to be married to. And, and, and if, I, if we can't, you know, we can't necessarily just set up this, this fair system that assigns people to their spouse and remove their right to choose, right? You know, it's not like you come to me and I go, well, maybe you really shouldn't be married to that person. But here, I'll give you someone you should be married to. You let me decide for you because that's fair because then you don't get to pick whoever you like and, you know, whatever benefits you the most and how that works out for you, I'll choose for you because that's fair, right? Yeah, that's, that's fair. That's, that's a, that system that assigns people to the spouse removes that right to choose is ridiculous and that is evil. So why do we expect that of God? Why do we put that expectation upon God? Why can't we allow God the very same right that we ourselves expect to have? Why can't God have that right? Why do we expect God to have to do something that we ourselves don't establish? 
Mark chapter, chapter 3 as we close. A couple things of observance, tying it back to this faith plus obedience equaling blessing. Three purposes to this selection of the 12 that we see. Look in verse 14. Mark chapter 3, 14, it says, He appointed 12 that they, that, it says that, this is the purpose, they might be with him. First is to be with him. This is the first uh, this is the first purpose of the selection of the 12, is that they would be with him. Second, keep reading, and that he might send them to preach. The second purpose is that he would send them in order to teach others. He has something for them to do, so, uh, something for them to obey. Third is that, uh, that we see here is verse 15, and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons that they would see and participate in the miracles of God. Faith, listen, going back to faith plus obedience, faith is vitally important to your relationship with God. Grab that. Faith is vitally important to your relationship with God. The more time you spend with Jesus, your faith grows in Him because you get to know Him and His character and you're able to see the tremendous God-only miraculous things in your life. Jesus selects these people that... They would be with him, that they would spend time with him. This is a faith-growing thing, that the more time you spend with Jesus, the more you trust him, the more you place your faith in him. Obedience is vitally important. Not only is faith vitally important to your relationship with God, obedience is vitally important to your relationship with God. When God sends you to accomplish a task and to give your, you, you and I need to give ourselves holy and obediently to his will instead of ours. Because in doing that, you end up knowing the word of God and causing others to know the word of God. Look what he says there in verse 14. He says, not only that they might be with him, but that they, he might send them to preach. He says, here's what I want you to do. Go and preach. And it's as you are obedient, you can only be obedient as pertains to the word of God. And as you're obedient to the word of God, you understand it better. The way that, and the more that you understand God's word, you live God's word in your life, and in effect, you start teaching people. It's not that you have to stand up here and talk for a long time, way too long if you're me, but you stand up in your life and you preach the word. Whether it's a conversation that you have with somebody around the water cooler, whether it's something that you do because of how you live your life, it's obedience. And obedience causes you to understand the word of God and it causes others to understand the word of God. Seeing and experiencing the miracles of God in your life and through your life are only possible when faith and obedience come together through yielding to the Holy Spirit. The only way that they were, able, they were going to be able to see these miracles that we see in verse 15, that they were, they were able to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons is because of the faith and the obedience coming together and the Spirit of God having his way in their life. That's the only way it's possible. You will be blessed beyond measure if you find the sweet place of acting in faith under the Lord through an obedient heart. And so we see Jesus selecting these 12 apostles based upon his grace and his ability alone. These men were not selected because of their great ability, not because they, of what they brought to the table, not because they helped with the cause of Jesus, and not because they were scholars. They were just regular, ordinary people. And you can do a study on each one of these guys and find out that really, they had nothing to offer. They were just regular, ordinary people. Each of these were ordinary men with ordinary, normal lives, have nothing of greatness about them at all. Yet these 12 men would turn the world upside down because they were with him. They were sent by him and they saw his greatness worked out in their lives. One more scripture as we close. Acts chapter four. In Acts chapter Three and four, these, these two scriptures come together. We see that Peter and John are going to the temple at the hour of prayer. And as they enter through the, the gate called Beautiful, they come. There's a man who's crippled. He's laying there. He says, give me some money. They say, we don't have any money, but what we do have in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. The guy gets up. He runs around like a maniac. Everyone's going crazy. They come out. They say that Peter and John, you have to be gods. They start to try to worship them. They're like, no, 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 no. That's not us. It's about Jesus. We have nothing. We're just regular, ordinary, crazy guys that are willing to follow God. We have the faith in God, the obedience to do what he commanded us to do. And this is the result of that. And so as he steps forward in that, they are, you know, 
revival breaks out. It says that 5,000 men are saved, which if you translate that into their possible families and however, however many people are saved as a result, up to 15,000 people could have gotten saved because they healed this guy and he ran around the temple, right? That's, that's just amazing thing is going on. And so here we come to this and we see that uh, they come uh, to the, uh, the Sanhedrin and they're about to be, Peter and John are about to be uh, just blessed beyond measure. No, they're not going to bless them. They're going to, they're going to strictly and, and harshly rebuke them. And so Peter, in starting in verse eight, he being filled with the Holy Spirit, he starts to, to, to speak to them and he preaches to them. And, and look in verse 11, we're going to read 11 through 13. It says this, Peter's speaking and he speaks of Jesus. He says, This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were regular, average, everyday guys, they marveled and realized that they had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. Regular, average, everyday people spending time with Jesus, obeying his word, seeing miraculous things happen. Be with Jesus. Be with Jesus. Learn to trust him. Learn to act out in faith in him. Trust him. He, he's not going to leave you hanging. He's not going to ask you to do something that's, that, that's going to destroy you. He's looking to grow you and develop you. Learn to trust him. Do what he says. Know the word well enough to know whether or not God is asking you to do that or if that's just you. Be with Jesus. Learn to trust him. Do what he says and your life will be blessed by his ability worked out in you and through you. Let's pray. Well, God, we come to you today and we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the blessing of being able to study it, of being able to be uh, established in it. And God, we know that your word is truth. Um, Lord, just, just like uh, Peter said there in John chapter 6, Lord, where else are we going to go? God, there is nowhere else for us to go because your word is what we need. God, we pray that as we've looked at this, uh, this section of Scripture and seen this idea of faith and obedience working together to cause the blessing of you in our lives, God, that you would give us the faith to step out and to trust you, that you would cause us to become obedient to your word and that you would establish us in who you are. Lord, help us to see you working miraculously in our lives. God, there are things in our lives that we cannot handle and we've been trying for far too long. Lord, we just want to yield it over to you. God, would you have your way? Would you please have your way with us? Lord, would you rule and reign? 